Welcome, listeners. For today's episode, we wanted to offer a content warning. We will be touching on sensitive topics some listeners may find upsetting related to residential and boarding school institutions and the ongoing detection of unmarked graves at these sites. Canada's Indian Residential School Survivors and Family Crisis Line is available 24 hours a day at 1-866-925-4419. And the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition recommends the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. We've linked to these resources and more in the episode show notes. Thank you, and take good care. If you come from a Native family that has been impacted by boarding schools, residential schools in Canada, which almost all of us have, you know that there's unmarked graves there. You know that children went there and never came back. That's Melissa Nelson, leader at the Cultural Conservancy and an Indigenous scholar and professor at Arizona State University. And I'm Sona Kosla, Chief Impact Officer at Benevity and host of the Speaking of Purpose podcast. If you're new to the podcast or joining us after tuning into Season 1, we've got something special in store for you. We're coming back after a long break with Season 2, a mini-series devoted to the history, stories, perspectives, and wisdom of Indigenous peoples, all the way from America to Indonesia. After last year's global awakening to the atrocities and continued inequities faced by Indigenous peoples all over the world, we at Benevity spent time meeting with, and learning from, scholars, activists, corporate and nonprofit leaders to better understand the issues, past and present. It marked our first steps towards reconciliation, an ongoing process of establishing and maintaining a mutually respectful relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. Today on Speaking of Purpose, Melissa helps us understand how past colonization and settlement, including residential schools, have helped shape the present-day experiences of Indigenous peoples. In this episode, she offers wisdom that can help all of us find our personal path towards reconciliation. Let's journey together, and let's meet Melissa. Wonderful. Thank you, Sona, for this invitation. I will say, I greeted you in the language of some of my ancestors, um, Turtle Mountain Chippewa or Anishinaabe and Cree. Uh, And I'm also Norwegian from my father's side. Uh, I consider myself a mixed race, Native American ecologist, scholar activist, um, involved with nonprofits, uh, higher education and philanthropy, uh, currently a professor of sustainability at Arizona State University, uh, and involved with a number of uh, organizations. Thank you. I'll say namaste back, which is how my oh, ancestors would. Great. <laughs> namaste to you. Would, uh, would, would greet you. I'm curious actually about the meaning of the greeting or the. Yes, yes. Well, there just as namaste has such a deep meaning, um, 
Buju nin dinwe maganatug. It's quite a mouthful, but buju means greetings, but it's much more than that. Um, Nana Buju was our trickster character who was kind of the mm. like the son of God, if you will. Um, although he was a shapeshifter and not entirely human. Um and definitely part spirit. So when we say buju, we're saying like, are you the first person on the earth or are you the spontaneous person? It, there's also a meaning that we are like original people, first people. So it harkens back to our creation time and just that we're always recreating ourselves new in the moment. So buju is like, we're present to, here together, greeting each other. And then Nindinawe Magan, we are all related together in this moment. So it's it's greeting each other in very much of a sacred way that we are all related and we're all together in this moment um, in creation. Like That's an ongoing process. Melissa Nelson is a lover of learning and nature. She has shared her deep knowledge of Indigenous history and ways of being as a professor at universities like San Francisco State and Arizona State. She also uses her passions and expertise to give back. Melissa sits on the board of the Cultural Conservancy, a nonprofit dedicated to protecting and restoring Indigenous cultures, empowering them in direct application of traditional knowledge and practices on their ancestral lands. She was its first Native American director, and she grew and developed the organization over 28 years. Melissa is also a founding board member of the Segoratea Land Trust the first-ever urban, indigenous, women-led land trust in Oakland, California. And as if that weren't enough, she also works as a philanthropic advisor to several indigenous-led funding organizations. This is one of those episodes that might just get your cells vibrating with knowing. It's one of those magical conversations that reminds you that no matter our differences, race, space, age, history, we can relate through sharing. Melissa graciously agreed to share her knowledge. With her help, we'll look at colonization and its effects from a North American, or as some indigenous peoples refer to it, Turtle Island, standpoint. The name comes from various indigenous oral histories that tell the stories of a turtle that holds the world on its back. Then, we'll wrap our minds around terms like decolonization and reparations. And finally, we'll dig in to learn about reconciliation and how we can all start or continue our journey. I'll never forget, in 2019, I heard Trisha Stevens do a land acknowledgement at Benevity's annual corporate purpose conference, Goodness Matters. At the time, Trisha was the charitable giving manager of one of Benevity's beloved clients, Lush Cosmetics. And we will hear from her in episode four of this season. And of course, Land acknowledgements are quite common now, at events, concerts, on corporate websites or email signatures. But that was my first experience hearing one live. I asked Melissa what she thought about land acknowledgements. So Melissa, I'd love to talk to you about land acknowledgements. I have to admit I have a fairly ambivalent relationship with them um, because I, I believe the spirit of what we're trying to do is absolutely a a worthy thing and really important. But what I find is that it often just becomes a checkbox thing that people are now like just embedding all the time. And it also makes me feel like, 
we continue to propagate this concept of words, statements without action behind them. And so I'll just give you an example. Like we, it was actually Trisha Stevens who used to run uh, oh, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, the charitable giving program at Lush who, who said, Hey, you know, I think at Benevi at your large events, you should probably do land acknowledgement. So we looked up and we said, Oh my God, absolutely. You're right. We we're like, but we don't just want to acknowledge the land. Like how do we actually support the people? And so we, set up um, an opportunity for everybody to donate uh, donation currency that we gave to all the attendees to the um, the indigenous organization on that land. And that just felt more authentic to us. But I also recognize you can't always do that. Every single webinar, every single digital interaction. That's, and right. So That's right. I would just love your opinion on land acknowledgements. Are they effective in achieving their aim? Is it a good thing? I was taught as a very young age, and most Indigenous peoples are, that when you go to someone's territory, you always acknowledge the, the traditional custodians or caretakers of the land and whoever's ancestors' bones you're walking on. I mean, it's very much a traditional part of what I would call our original instructions that you do that. It's not a fad for us. It's not just a new thing. You go to someone's territory, you bring a gift. You acknowledge the traditional people on whose land who have names for the mountains, who have names for the springs, who have, you know, burial grounds there where their ancestors are laying to rest. So, yes, land and people acknowledgments are really important. And it's very contextual, too, because. Some places, you know, I'm currently in Arizona where you have 22 strong tribal nations that are very much visible, a high percentage of the population of the state. In Canada, it's more visible. You know, in, when I'm in California, where I grew up, California Native Indians are absolutely invisible, and most of them do not have federal recognition or tribal status. So to acknowledge their name, to even say their name, and that they're living, they're not just ancestral, they're contemporary communities, and they have, you know, we want them to have thriving futures. So I think it's always important to acknowledge whose land you're on, because we're standing on somebody's ancestors. So I'm very pro-land and people acknowledgement. I don't like that it's become kind of a check the box fad and then it doesn't have much meaning for people. It has to be authentic. Like really, did you go and make an offering to the land before you said it, right? Or did you learn about who the local tribe is and what their issues are and maybe donate to a campaign they have to clean up their water from a toxic mine nearby? Like I agree that it should not just be empty words and check the box and then move on. That's, you know, that is kind of worse than useless in a way because you're tokenizing it. It should be authentic and it should have some real ethical, um, you know, backing behind it to, to do some action. But just acknowledging tribes' names sometimes, that they have a long-term history in a place, that they are presently in the community today, I think those things are very important because there's been so much amnesia and cultural erasure of indigenous peoples as invisible and erased that saying their tribal names the way they like to be called is very important. Authentic land acknowledgements can be an important start toward offering reparations to indigenous communities. They can demonstrate that you care enough to learn the original name of the local indigenous community where you live or work. The website native-land.ca 
makes it easy to find the names of the communities in your region so you can acknowledge the original stewards of the land and map Indigenous territories, treaties, and languages. You can also do a search online to find Indigenous communities near you or go to a local friendship centre to get more information. When we make land acknowledgements, we at Benevity try to personalise them as much as possible. We take time to learn a bit about the groups and their names and share that bit of knowledge, as well as the opportunity to donate to local tribes and nations as part of our acknowledgements. It's what's true to us. One example of moving from land acknowledgements to reparations that we'll hear Melissa touch on later is the Shumi tax. This is a voluntary tax in the San Francisco-Oakland Bay area of California, and it's a great way for local citizens to give back to the First Peoples, who took care of the land before it was settled. Reconciliation. It's a word we're hearing more and more, and at its core, to reconcile means to establish and maintain a respectful relationship. In Canada, it's been a big topic as more graves are being found at residential schools and institutions across the country. More people are beginning to ask the same thing Indigenous communities have been asking all along. How can Indigenous peoples, governments, corporations, and individuals work together towards a better future, considering our difficult history. What does the process of reconciliation look like? Benevity is headquartered in Calgary, Canada, a city in a region that the Blackfoot tribes of southern Alberta described as Mokinstis. And it's where I live. When I first heard about the findings of unmarked graves at the Kamloops Indian Residential School back in May 2021, I was devastated. I'll never forget reading the news while I lay in bed. My heart was pounding, and my emotions were swirling. I've always loved Canada, and this news brought forth an ugliness in our history I just wasn't ready to confront. I vaguely remembered that there was injustice and ill-treatment of Indigenous peoples from my time in school, but the reality and gravity of the situation was now in black and white right in front of me. It was no longer in the past, it was present. While these stories have been in the mass media in recent years, they have been long known as truth by many Indigenous communities and people close with them. After reading about the rediscovery of the graves, I knew I had a lot of learning to do. So I reached out to people who could help me process how we got here and how we move forward. I asked Melissa to shed light on the significance of the unmarked graves from an Indigenous perspective. Yes, no, it's such a, a powerful time that the children are showing up. And this topic is actually very, very close to my heart. My mother went to boarding school. I come from a long line of um, boarding school survivors. Um, when my mother, my grandmothers, my great grandmothers were taken away and shipped, you know, hundreds of miles away to, for them up in the North, North Dakota area and South Dakota, mainly um, Catholic boarding schools. And just the brutality and the stories um, are just profound. So if you come from a native family that has been impacted by 
boarding schools, residential schools in Canada, which almost all of us have, you know that there's unmarked graves there. You know that children went there and never came back. I actually co-produced an award-winning documentary film back in 2004 called The Salt Song Trail, Bringing Creation Back Together. And it was exactly about this, but people were not quite ready to hear it yet. It's a film about um, the Southern Paiute folks going to the Sherman Indian Boarding School in Riverside, California, where they knew a number of their tribal members, their children had gone to school there and never came home and were missing. And um, they have these very beautiful healing songs called the salt songs. And they sung them at this little unmarked grave. Sorry, actually, it was rediscovered by some Boy Scouts who were just kind of clearing brush and found this little grave site behind the Sherman Indian Boarding School. And we tried to get it out to the news then, and that was in 2004, well, starting 2002, 2004, and people weren't ready to hear it. There's been a shift in the last 20 years where people are ready to hear this so that those children showed up at this time, I don't think was a coincidence. One thing that is important to mention here is the verbiage. You might see in the news or hear in conversation that people have recently discovered graves at residential schools. However, Indigenous people always knew or suspected they were at these schools and other institutional sites. So, more accurate terminology to use is that people have found or are locating or rediscovering grave sites. Melissa mentioned that it took 20 years for us to wake up to the real issue and much longer in many cases. This awakening also happened amidst a time of converging crises. The racial justice movement, climate change, the pandemic, societal division and polarization, and economic instability. We are waking up to the systemic challenges we face, realizing that our very survival is at stake. The good news is that there are people all around us, no matter where we live, who have thrived on the land the longest and many are willing to share the wisdom from their cultures and communities with us. Wisdom that comes from centuries of experience. Wisdom that might just offer clues on how to approach the challenges we face that are no longer in the future, but are here, right now. All we have to do is to do our part, which is to listen. There's now this opportunity for healing and justice in a way that has not been in a long time. And these schools were in Hawaii, the Pacific, Australia, New Zealand, Africa. I mean, there were schools like this all around the world. Yet, all of these stories beg the question, how did we get here in the first place? That brings us to settler colonization which functions by erasing Indigenous peoples and cultures to replace them with the settler society and values. Melissa explained this to us, along with the far-reaching impacts on Indigenous peoples and our natural resources. Well, I mean, I think the most obvious blatant impacts of colonization, uh, I'll just speak about in North America, Turtle Island, which I know best, but the colonization was, you know, U.S., I mean, imperialism um, happened all around the world. And it impacted indigenous peoples and local peoples very similar in some ways and very different in other ways. But, you know, first of all, it's um, religious 
persecution and it's, you know, the idea of imposing religion, Judeo-Christian religion on quote primitive religion. So that's where the missionaries came in and the boarding schools. So it's an effort to remove religious freedom and implant, you know, um, a particular belief system. It was obviously also economic, you know, coming in to exploit the resources, the timber, you know, the gold, the fisheries, um, whatever the resource was, you know, which the quote new world, the very old world of Turtle Island was just filled with incredible wealth and bounty, a garden that indigenous peoples had tended and loved and cared for, for, you know, thousands of years. So the destruction of the natural resources was just devastating um, for native peoples because they lost their homelands, their hunting grounds, their gardens, um, their fishing areas, um, their medicine gathering areas, all of that by settlers coming in with their wagons and their cattle and their sheep and all the domestic animals that had foreign seeds in them, you know, that um, took over the native plant communities. So there was eco-colonialism, as some people call it, right, because it shifted the whole ecosystems, the native um, flora and fauna, which really was the homeland and the, the beautiful garden and traditional territories of indigenous peoples. So they couldn't get their food, they couldn't get their medicine, they couldn't get their materials, right? And so that economic, you know, colonialism also, of course, needed labor. So we know they brought in, you know, African indigenous peoples for labor through the horrible slavery, but they enslaved indigenous peoples all the time for labor too. Even though sometimes they got room and board or a pittance of money, it was pretty much indentured servitude. So um, it impacted the environment, the health of the economies, the traditional economies. And then politically, of course, these small sovereign indigenous nations were supplanted by colonial governments and colonial nation states. And then all of the settlers came in afterwards to move in and take over the land permanently. Right. And then to remove and relocate indigenous peoples to reserves or reservations through treaties or sometimes not through treaties. California and British Columbia on the West Coast, they didn't bother too much with treaties by the time they got out there because it was like, hey, these resources are so rich. We don't need to negotiate with the first peoples here. So all of that has led to a legacy of um First, genocide by diseases, genocide by warfare, ecocide, the destruction of the biodiversity, um, disruption of gender roles. A lot of First Nations have very strong um, women-centered societies, and um, the European colonial nations always privileged the male leaders and disempowered the female leaders. Um, so that's led to really 500 years of disruption and colonization for indigenous peoples with historical trauma, intergenerational trauma. And yet we are survivors. We are resilient. And despite all of that, you know, we are still here. Um, we are mixed. You know, we are not living in our homelands sometimes, but we are proud of our ancestors who survived all of that. And that old saying goes, it's been attributed to many, but, you know, they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. Whoa. 
Melissa teaches four-month-long classes on American Indian studies where she unpacks settler colonization for her students. It's that much of a complex topic. And yet, Melissa just laid that out in a digestible summary that I think we can all wrap our heads around. Thank you, Melissa. Another term you've probably heard of, and one Melissa and I spoke about, is decolonization, which refers to the undoing of colonization. I think this whole conquest colonial worldview we've been living in, it only works for the 1%. And people are realizing that. And so people need to decolonize from a way of thinking. To me, it all starts with decolonizing the mind. Um, And then we can start decolonizing our food, eating better foods, native foods, healthier foods, decolonizing our languages, speaking the languages of our foremothers and forefathers, because encoded in those different languages are different ways of thinking and being and knowing and learning that has really great wisdom in it that we have erased for cultural assimilation. So we talk about biodiversity, how important it is, but equally important cultural diversity and cognitive diversity and linguistic diversity. Diversity is the spice of life. Diversity, we have so much richness, and yet this whole monocultural process of assimilation has been so destructive. So decolonizing is restoring the diversity of our heritage and our cultures, our ways of knowing and being, which often includes more sustainable understandings about the human nature relationship. Because everyone has different identities, they may also have a different relationship to the concept. For example, I was a child of immigrants to Canada. So while I did not necessarily colonize, I see that I have a role and responsibility in decentering Western knowledge systems and frameworks as absolutes. I have a lot of work to do as a first-generation Canadian, as do other residents and newcomers to the country. Melissa also introduced us to the concept of rematriation, which I heard for the first time in this interview. The land back movement is so important um, related to decolonizing the land. We need to decolonize the land from private property and, you know, reunite with the land as our kin, as our relative, um, as our source of life. And so Indigenous peoples have been asking for their land back since the first colonists set foot on our territory. Um, But again, because of this shift in public consciousness with racial justice and um, the under understanding a need for more equality. And there's more of an openness, just like with the Shumi tax, people want to do something to acknowledge their settler colonial heritage and how unjust it has been. And part of giving back is giving back land. And so there is this land back movement um, that is happening in Indian country and really all over with people returning, selling at a discount, opening up access to their lands back to its original caregivers. And so a part of that is what we as Indigenous women leaders are calling land rematriation, because it's really back to the mother. It's back to Mother Earth. It's back to the sacred feminine principle. There's no coincidence that these movements are often being led by Indigenous women Um, who are strong and fierce leaders and representing, you know, fierce compassion 
to basically reunite communities with our lands. There's also Rowan White is a great Mohawk leader of the seed rematriation movement. So she's literally going into museums and seed banks and archives and having those seeds returned to their place of origin. Um, So rematriation is being used for land and seeds, but it's really emphasizing the sacred feminine principle, a return to the womb in a way, or return to the mother um, and return to that caregiving of all of life. We know that this is our home. The earth is our home. And, you know, many of the world's religions, including Judeo-Christian, this is the Garden of Eden. We are in paradise. It is not somewhere else. And that's very much an indigenous belief, too, and value that this place is sacred land and that we have to start treating it like sacred land again. And that's again, you know, women as mothers, mothers of our nations, mothers of our children and um, caregivers of the family and the extended family. Again, that's why there's such an emphasis on rematriation and women's leadership in a lot of these movements. In the past year, we at Benevity have been thinking more about how companies can take action toward education and reconciliation. Indigenous people work at our organizations, and fostering a sense of belonging and giving them a seat at the table is one way companies can get started. One of my first steps was to start educating myself. This was also the action that we encouraged Benevity employees, clients, and the public to take. Education is an integral part of reconciliation. So we ran a campaign called Education for Reconciliation. The campaign rewarded every individual who completed a free Indigenous Canada course with a $50 donation to select nonprofits supporting Indigenous communities. The goal was to illuminate the issues faced by Indigenous peoples by promoting learning and action. While taking the course online, I learned that this is in fact what reconciliation is. Bonus! But let's hear how Melissa thinks that people can do their part. I mean, self-awareness and educating yourself. Who are the first peoples? Who are the native peoples on whose land where you live and work? And what are their issues? What are their concerns? You know, it's so ironic that most indigenous peoples' homelands have been just mined and polluted, and um, they often don't have even access to safe drinking water. Um, And so understanding the injustices that have happened and doing your part, whether it's making financial donations, no matter how small or how large, the Shumi tax, volunteering your services, offering pro bono, you know, maybe you're a lawyer, you know, Native people always need lawyers, maybe you're an accountant. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to give back and learn about the communities and to go with a humble heart and be of service and just self-awareness and understanding um, the, the history, the true Indigenous history of place and those impacts of colonialism and the need to decolonize are all really important starting points. There are plenty of concrete actions that all of us can start to take to make a positive impact on Indigenous communities, and they affect us all and the planet we live on. 
I think people should really care about Indigenous issues today because it's part of healing for our earth and healing for our humanity, for everybody, because there's been a shadow. I don't know Canada as much as U.S., but I know they're quite similar. But there's been kind of this shadow over America um, with these hidden atrocities, or they're not really even hidden. They're just erased. It's like selective amnesia of slavery and genocide. And until there is some recognition and healing around it, I think there's going to continue to be social strife and division. We need to decolonize and we need to heal. And it's not just for Indigenous peoples, it's for all peoples. And so many immigrant communities that have come to the U.S. and Canada that have also suffered racism and discrimination and oppression, you know, they have a voice um, at the table, too, and have a stake in this. And then Euro-American folks, even if they come from, you know, quote, white colonial cultures, you know, they came from rich traditions. Their lives would be enriched by honoring and respecting the diversity and the rights of all peoples. And it's just more, it's more fun. It's more exciting. It's more interesting. It makes life worth living when you know that people are flourishing together. We rise together. One person can't get ahead and put down others. To me, I just the ethical consideration is so strong, but it will really take rewiring the inherent racism that some people just think some people are better than others or more superior than others. And that's going to be a long journey to equal that out. A long journey indeed. But after this conversation with Melissa, I left feeling hopeful. It was clear that solutions to some of our biggest challenges are held in the wisdom of Indigenous communities. All we have to do is heed Melissa's advice and come at it with a humble heart. Speaking of Purpose was created by the passionate team here at Benevity, a technology and engagement platform that helps the world's most iconic brands bring their purpose to life, headquartered in Calgary, Canada. We hope it provides you with a spark of inspiration to find your purpose and your way of leaving the world better than you found it. Special thanks to Melissa Nelson. If you'd like to learn more about her story and her work as an educator and advisor to three influential Indigenous-led philanthropic funds, go to nativeland.org. That's nativeland, all one word, dot O-R-G. This podcast was recorded on the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, as well as the Sutina and the Stony Nakoda First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Benevity's headquarters is situated on land across from the Bow River, which has shaped this land and its people for generations. To listen to past episodes and get new episodes as soon as they're released, subscribe or follow Speaking of Purpose wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, Ruka Sombalingi, Secretary General of the Alliance of Indigenous Peoples of the Archipelago, will share why trust is key to creating and strengthening bonds between Indigenous communities and companies. 
If you liked today's episode, please consider sharing it with a coworker or friend. Thanks for listening. <laughs>